1: Hello, I'm David Crowther from the History of England. All I can tell you good people is that English history is a hoot. Absolutely stuffed with everything the heart could wish for. Drama, love, hate, war, death, destruction, heroism, religion, art, literature and jinx as high as you can imagine. I mean, if it's not there, a word doesn't exist for it. And there are some very funny moments and on occasion even dancing. So look, here I sit in my shed in the sun and the rain telling you about the story I've loved since I was a nipper. It's good accurate history don't get me wrong but it's also drama and the way people lived and died and why it matters so come and join me in the shed and together we'll go all the way from the chaos as the romans left britain without so much as a buy your leave all the way through to those beaches we were going to fight on it's available on a good podcatcher near you or you can subscribe on acast.com it'll be fun seriously
0: Welcome to Pax Britannica. Season 2, Episode 44, The Witchfinder General. Welcome back to Pax Britannica. I'm your host, Samuel Hume. Before we begin today, I'd like to thank my Patreon House of Lords, which has been joined by the Earl of Evesham, Justin Venegas, and Max, Viscount Johnson. Like all other patrons, they can now listen to this and every other episode ad-free. Go to patreon.com slash Britannica to find out more. I should also say that for listeners in Russia, this will be the last episode available on the feed to Russian IP addresses. This is due to my host complying with sanctions over Putin's horrendous invasion of Ukraine and the danger posed to its employees, who work in Russia. I haven't spoken about these events in the podcast or on social media, because to be honest, what can I really contribute? But I will take this opportunity to ask that if you can donate to help the victims of the Russian invasion, please do so. I'll leave a few links in the show notes. We left off last week with young Rebecca West giving evidence at the trial of her mother and neighbours, who were rotting in the dungeon of Colchester Castle. She recited to court not the first, not the second, but the third rendition of her initiation into the witch cult. The fact that her testimony had drastically changed in the time span, location, attendees at the Sabbat, and the events themselves mattered not one jot. The accusers of the Colchester Six were subsequently brought in to give their own testimony, after having been informed of Rebecca's new tale. They confirmed that it was all true, even though this now contradicted their earlier testimony. Also last time, we heard about the first of Matthew Hopkins and John Stern's interrogations, and the methods which would become a staple of their investigations. Depriving suspects of sleep, watching for their imps, Pricking of suspected teats, isolated questioning with promises of lenience. Today we continue the tale of young Master Hopkins as he claims the title that made him perhaps the most famous witch hunter in all of European history, certainly the English speaking world, the Witchfinder General. At this stage, however, the prime movers in the Essex witch hunt were not Stern and Hopkins, but the magistrates they were assisting. Sir Harbottle Grimston and Sir Thomas Bowes. Around the time that Rebecca's testimony was being given to the court, they received word from the small town of Thorply Soken. Overcrowded and isolated from neighbouring communities by sheer cliffs and sinking marshland, Thorply Soken had been crippled by the economic fluctuations caused by the war, sending many of its residents into poverty. The message the magistrates received begged them to visit the village and oversee the prosecution of a local widow, Margaret Moon. Moon, who had been evicted by her landlord after a prospective tenant offered to pay more rent, had been accused of a range of crimes. The new tenant's wife was attacked by a horde of lice, in numbers so vast that, quote, they might have been swept off her clothes with a stick. The brother of Moon's ex-landlord witnessed this and claimed that the lice were like nothing he had ever seen, and certainly not natural. The other accusations leveled at Moon primarily included the murder of a neighbour's baby through poisoned apples these neighbours the cornwalls were the ones who brought this case to the attention of the manningtree magistrates henry cornwall the father of the deceased infant hired two of the search women who had been involved in the prosecution of the colchester six already we see the value being bestowed upon those who were famous for their expertise in witch-finding which will come up again later En route to Thorpely Soken, one of the searchers was struck in the head and knocked off of the bridge she'd been crossing. She claimed that when she emerged from the river, she saw no sign of her assailant, and suspected that she had been attacked by supernatural means. What's more likely is that she slipped, but hey, that would just be embarrassing. When the searchers arrived in Thorpely Soken, Moon reportedly sneered, quote, Manningtree rogues, who the devil sent for you? Moon was much less cooperative with the searchers than Clark had been, having to be physically stripped of her clothes when she refused to undress herself. The searchers subsequently found, quote, three long teats, or bigs, in her secret parts, which seemed to have lately been sucked, End quote. Now, Moon seems to have caved to her accusers, agreeing to summon her imps if they provided her with beer and bread. They did so and Moon dipped the beer into the bread, left it near a wall cavity, and called out their names. When the imps didn't appear as ordered, Moon flew into a rage and denounced her daughters as having stolen them, demanding that they be arrested too. When they were, and the same growths were found on their bodies, one confessed only to having, quote, "...felt something come into the bed about her legs being at that time broad awake," end quote, after her mother scolded her for not doing her chores. Like in Manningtree, the women were watched over the weekend, with Henry Cornwall volunteering for the first shift. Something that vaguely resembled a rat, but gave off a horrendous odour, apparently dropped out of Moon's skirts. Moon then told her watchers to try and catch it, but oddly enough they didn't want to touch it. Moon held out until the Monday night, when she confessed to having twelve imps, blasphemous mockeries of the disciples and named them. She confessed to the crimes she had been accused of and many more. Moon and her daughters were to be held until the magistrates arrived, and they were taking their time. Over the next week, they stopped by two other villages after hearing rumors of other active witches. Alsford, in search for Mary Greenlife, and the neighboring Wivenhoe to order Mary Johnson watched until their return. Once Grimston and Bowers arrived in Thorpley Soken. Moon denied everything she had never confessed to any of the accusations nor had she denounced her daughters or attempted to summon any imps unfortunately for her her neighbours unanimously insisted that she had and informed the magistrates in detail perhaps the most interesting thing for justices who were already in the middle of elizabeth clark's trial was that moon had supposedly confirmed that she had worked with the manningtree witches here Grimston and Bowes had evidence, however flimsy, of a witchcraft conspiracy that spread across the godly society of Essex. Through April and May 1645, their work proceeded at breakneck speed. As word spread of the hunt, the magistrates could scarcely take a break on their circuit without being informed of some maleficium from a few days or a few decades ago. Circumstances now allowed for local fears and grudges to manifest. In Great Clacton, several women were accused, with a local vicar arranging for them to be arrested and prosecuted on his own initiative. The preacher, Joseph Long, was known as a greedy drunkard. Just the previous year, he'd been censured for his failings. This aggressive action against the worst of all sinners, witches, was a significant boost to his popularity. Again, the witch-hunting fervour was such that the Manningtree Searchers were employed, paid from the parish coffers for their services. Grimston and Bowes travelled through Kirkby-Lisoken, Walton-Lisoken, Wivenhoe, St. Osyth, and Grimston's own estate at the Hamlet of Ramsey, with testimony and interrogations of multiple witches at each stop. The Ramsey accusations were dealt with in the nearby town of Harwich, a port settlement with a large amount of sailors, and it was here that the two magistrates were joined by one of the Manningtree searchers, and our friend John Stern who found the trials of the Harwich Witches, or Harwiches if you prefer, to be convincing examples of, as Gaskill puts it, diabolic familiarity. Whether suspects confessed or not, or if the searchers and watchers were successful or failed, the departure of Grimston and Bows was matched with the transfer of the community's suspected witches to the dungeon of Colchester Castle. While the magistrates toured Essex, The War of the Three Kingdoms continued unabated, and naturally the towns in the king's potential vengeful path were a bit concerned about their defenses. The priorities of the municipal authorities were now how many men were under arms they could muster and how they would pay them. Gaskill argues that it was under this existential threat of physical attack that these regions most fervently tried to protect themselves from the metaphysical and hunted for the witches they suspected in their communities. "...witches pillaged the neighbourhood, invaded the body, and besieged the soul, and the sense that victory in the field depended on godliness at home made hunting them feel part of the war effort." We've spent all of today's episode on the Witchfinder General, not talking about the Witchfinder General. So, let's talk about the Witchfinder General. While Grimson and Bowes were on their own crusade, Hopkins and Stern had been at work, joined by two other Manningtree searchers. They had examined three suspects at the town of Langham, called for the prosecution of a woman called Susan Went, and had both sworn to testify against another woman called Mary Sterling. Yet, despite the series of place names and suspects I've rattled out so far today, the geographical extent of the witch hunt was quite limited. Essex was divided into six divisions, and each of these divisions was made up of several hundreds, a geographical term that established boundaries for legal and military administration. Grimson and Bowes operated within the Tendring Hundred. So did Hopkins and Stern. At this stage, there were no prosecutions for witchcraft west of Colchester, and only one south of Chelmsford. Yet within the Tendring Hundred, which was itself made up of twelve communities, Witchcraft accusations and prosecutions were running rampant. In other words, the witch hunt was intensive but not extensive. It was both catalyzed and inhibited by local politics and connections. While the magistrates had the authority necessary to work anywhere within their jurisdiction, Hopkins and Stern faced challenges due to their passionate amateur status. This was no issue in those communities that welcomed them but others took serious issue with their enthusiasm, notably within Colchester itself. Hopkins had visited six women in Colchester Castle in April, all from Manningtree and its locality. By June, that dungeon cell that had already been barely habitable was crowded by at least 30 more suspected witches. The numbers are unclear, not only because it isn't a simple matter to see how many people were transferred to the castle, but also because four of them died from the conditions. The coroner recorded their deaths as Visitation by God, which is one hell of a euphemism, but Professor Gaskell asserts that they most likely died from either Yersinia pestis, better known as Bubonic plague or the Black Death, or Typhus, the jail fever. Not only was public opinion in Colchester wavering due to the harsh conditions in the castle, but political factions within the city Helped oppose the witch hunt itself, Alice Stansby was held for many months in the castle before being convicted of witchcraft, only to be later pardoned. The bill for this single prosecution was at least one pound thirteen shillings and four d. Professor Gaskell converts this cost to over a thousand pounds in two thousand and five, and argues that the opponents of the mayor Robert Buxton used this exorbitant cost against him having Stansby exonerated, and directly opposing the efforts of the Witchfinders. Hopkins and Stern were prevented from questioning other suspects. Stern was even outlawed after he failed to attend a court summons to explain his actions. With Cromwell's victory over the king at Naseby in June 1645, the Witchfinders now had a safe route home to Suffolk, just as their popularity in Essex was beginning to tank. And so, to Suffolk they went, with searchers in tow, arriving in either late June or early July 1645. Over the next month, 50 towns would offer up 150 men and women to the witchfinders as the county sought to purge itself of political and religious dissidents.
1: Was the Sphinx 10,000 years old? Were there serial killers in ancient Greece and Rome? What were the lives of transgender, intersex, and non-binary people like in the ancient world? We're Jen. And Jenny.
0: From Ancient History Fangirl. We tell you true stories and tall tales of the ancient world. Sometimes we do it tipsy. Sometimes we have amazing guests on our show. Historians like Barry Strauss, podcasters like Liv Albert, Mike Duncan, and authors like Joanne Harris and Ben Aronovich.
1: We take you to the top of Hadrian's Wall to watch the Roman Empire fall at the end of the world.
0: We walk the catacombs beneath the Temple of the Feathered Serpent under Teotihuacan.
1: We walk the sacred spirals of the Lines in search of ancient secrets.
0: And we explore mythology from ancient cultures around the world.
1: Come find us at ancienthistoryfangirl.com or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: As Hopkins and Stern crossed the county line into the familiar countryside of Suffolk, the legal situation they found themselves in was probably at the top of their minds. So far, the witchfinders had been operating under the legal authority bestowed upon them by the magistrates Grimston and Bowes. Stern had been given a warrant to investigate the Manningtree Witches, and they had exploited this legal umbrella to great effect. Now, though, they were in a completely different situation. The warrant had only been valid within the Tendring Hundred, but Hopkins and Stern had not only just left the Hundred, but they left the county of Essex itself. Worse, the kingdom was at war, and a group of strangers travelling the land without appropriate authority was just asking for trouble. They potentially faced accusations of spying or banditry. It was around this time that Hopkins seems to have been referred to as the Witchfinder General. Professor Gaskell writes, It is tempting to think that the Witchfinders had obtained a more comprehensive commission from higher up the chain of command, such as that procured by dowsing from the Earl of Manchester. Contemporaries certainly came to believe that Parliament, or a representative thereof, had appointed Hopkins as an agent with a commission to discover witches. End quote. The dowsing that Gaskell refers to was the travelling iconoclast William Dowsing, who toured the region reforming, or vandalising, depending on your point of view, the Laudian churches he found. Gaskell often links the godly motivations of Dowsing with the godly motivations of Hopkins and Stern, and it is easy to see why. Whether or not the Witchfinders had the correct papers or not, it was of paramount importance that they pick the right places to offer their services. As Colchester had shown, a legal warrant wasn't worth the paper it was written on if the local authorities were opposed to their work, and so Hopkins and Stern prioritised communities where both the public and the elite were zealously opposed to witchcraft. In Suffolk, this seems to have manifested particularly against suspected royalists and suspected Catholics. Where Essex was fairly unified in its Puritanism, Suffolk's Presbyterians, while dominant, still had to contend with unorthodoxy. Here, the witchfinders divided. Hopkins, younger and without ties, went to the east of the county. Stern took the west, where his travels rarely took him far from his family home. Hopkins's chosen route was around 300 miles, and appears to have been one long journey. I had originally intended to follow Stern's travels at this point, but it would mostly be a list of names and places, and confessions of a type we've heard many times already. One notable event from his travels that is worth a mention is the first male confession of the hunt. Men had never been considered safe from the temptations of the devil, but were generally seen as more morally robust than women. A legacy of Eve, many preachers considered women to be more vulnerable to sin, passionate and sexual creatures. We only have to look at the Malleus Maleficarum and its horrendous gynophobia to see an extreme example of this line of thought. Despite women facing the vast majority of witchcraft accusations, Men were also accused and convicted in significant numbers across Europe, and in some places were the vast majority of both accusations and convictions. Yet so far in the East Anglian Trials, every accusation has been levelled at a woman. So, it is quite the change of pace when Stern, visiting the town of Long Melford, was approached by Alexander Sussums. Sussums is noted by Gaskell as being of, quote, modest means, he came to Stern in order to be searched out of guilt. This was a novelty for Stern. All previous searches had been on women, and so conducted by women out of decency, and so Stern appears to have undertaken the examination himself. Sussums directed him to his marks and confessed that he had been suckled by imps for sixteen years. This was enough for Stern, and the Witchfinder ordered Sussum's arrested and prepared for trial why sossums had been so forthcoming is a mystery although stern later noted that sossums had been freed and so to the witchfinder general himself after parting ways with stern hopkins's first port of call was most likely the town of chatisham here he heard the confessions of multiple witches one described having sex with the devil who was a deathly cold to the touch and of using her newfound imps to murder first her daughter then her grandchild. A husband and wife team were also arrested and interrogated, while an individual who was possibly their son fled to Connecticut after their trial. From Chattisham, Hopkins moved further east, into Ipswich proper, and through its surrounding communities. At each stop, he was flooded with new claims and accusations and more work to be done, with the associated costs from local parishes going towards the keeping of Hopkins and his entourage. Eventually, the witchfinders arrived in the village of Framlingham. The ancestral seat of the Howard family, the region was a hotbed of Catholicism and recusancy. The Howards had been religious conservatives during the reign of Henry VIII, with the patriarch and his heir going to the block, after fears of a Catholic restoration upon the king's death came to a head. Framlingham Castle was where then-Princess Mary had declared herself queen, in opposition to the Protestant Lady Jane Grey. Her sister and successor Elizabeth had turned the fortification into a prison for religious dissidents to her settlement, while James finally returned it to the Howard family. It had then been sold by the Howards to a Puritan, who in turn bequeathed the building to Cambridge University. By the time Hopkins arrived, the castle was falling into ruin, its keep and walls being cannibalised for building materials while the well had run dry. Yet, important for our purposes and for Hopkins, the castle's moat was still full. Framlingham was a community under stress. Not the first one we've seen so far, but notable for its circumstances. There was little land and few jobs for the residents, and in 1642 the area became the destination for large numbers of refugees fleeing the war in Ireland, Straining the lack of opportunities even further. The Puritan, who had once owned the castle, had ordered a workhouse built within its walls to help provide employment, but it would not be built until way after the Restoration. The wealth disparity between those within Old Framlingham, within the ancient Saxon ditch that surrounded the area, and those outside of it, was growing. It is worth noting that all the women suspected of witchcraft and brought to trial from Framlingham. Lived in poverty outside the ditch. At least six women, and possibly as many as twelve, were accused of witchcraft and interrogated. Witches from other communities were brought to Framlingham Castle to be swum in its moat, and some of the local witches may have enjoyed the same fate. This was the famous or infamous ordeal by water. In this case, to be innocent was to sink, while the guilty floated no matter the efforts of those conducting the trial. It's a myth that sinking led to drowning, by the way. Those who sank were pulled out of the water. What is certain, though, is that in addition to the usual methods of searching and watching, the suspects were also made to pace up and down rather than sit in one place, further exhausting them, and making them more likely to break and confess to any crime. The confessions at Framlingham roughly follow one of two paths. Either a poor woman is approached by the devil himself, seduced, promised love, wealth, and power, and then left with nothing except diabolic burdens, or they are first approached by small animals like mice or beetles that are later revealed to be imps, whereupon the devil appears and then the same process occurs. Professor Gaskell suggests that it was genuine guilt, catalyzed by the extreme conditions the suspects were forced into that led to their bizarre confessions. These suspects were regularly attending church, and were taught all about how God was judging them on their thoughts and actions. To read directly from Gaskill quote, Every week in church, they were reminded that God looked into their souls and judged them against the commandments painted on the walls of the nave. Dreams could be demonic invasions, evil thoughts projected to cause harm. The result was guilt, especially in women. A burden of fear, failed responsibility, and spiritual vulnerability, and no guilt was more acutely felt than sexual guilt, in the chasm between the ideals of chastity, modesty, and love on one side, and the reckless insistence of desire on the other. In the confessions of these women can be heard the lament of age for vanished youth, yearning for intimacy and kindness, indulgence in heart fluttering seduction and abandon. Hopkins left Framlingham and headed to Great Glemham, investigating local suspicions as he went. It appears that the suspects from these communities were all sent to Ipswich for trial, where Nathaniel Bacon, a close friend of Hopkins' father 20 years previously, was the magistrate. The jail at Bury St Edmunds was already full, while small village tollbooths often hosted at least one suspect to try and lessen the burden at the larger institutions. The Assizes' season was close at this point, though, and before Hopkins could attend those in Suffolk, both himself and Stern had been summoned back to Chelmsford to give evidence. En route back to Essex, Hopkins did not rest. Why waste the opportunity to do God's work, after all, especially when he still needed to eat? Stopping at Rushmere, he confiscated a knife from a witch's home, after she openly considered taking her own life before she was brought to trial. At Halesworth, a cooper named Thomas Everard confessed to being forcibly made a witch, having then married another witch, and raising their children to also be witches. When they became grandparents, they had murdered the child. The tale at Halesworth was dramatic. An entire family, on both sides of the marriage, either confessed to witchcraft or had been victims in the confessions of others. At the parish of Horham and Athlington, however, Hopkins came across some opposition. He had conducted his business as usual, received a confession, and made arrangements for their prosecution after his departure. The residents, though, began to kick up a fuss at both the bill the witch finder had charged them for his services, and over the prospective innocence of the suspects. Hopkins and his associates were rejected from the parish, and a contemporary recorded quote, when the witchfinders came into the neighbourhood, that they had one woman under trial who, she very believed was innocent, but being kept long fasting and without sleep, she confessed and called her imp Nan. This good gentlewoman told me that her husband, a very learned, ingenious gentleman, having indignation at the thing, he and she went to the house, and put the people out of doors, and gave the poor woman some meat, and let her go to bed. When asked after Hopkins and his searchers were expelled, she claimed to have no knowledge or memory of ever confessing, so brutal was the supposedly gentle questioning, and explained that she had a chicken she sometimes called Nan. It really does show how important it was for the witchfinders to have the local authorities on their side. The opposition of just one gentry family could throw their whole work into doubt. In the third week of July 1645, the Chelmsford Assize was brought into session. The authority that had been sent from London to prosecute the session's business was not a circuit judge, as was usual. The judicial process was expected to be upheld by professionally trained justices with decades of legal experience on commission from London, judges who knew what kind of evidence was acceptable and what must be discarded lest the innocent... Be found guilty. What had changed was the war. The conflict meant that instead of the legally trained circuit judges, the Chelmsford assizes in 1645 were overseen by the Earl of Warwick, a man with a complete lack of legal training but a strong parliamentarian fervor. He was an opponent of Laudianism, a patron of Puritans, and Lord Lieutenant of Essex. He knew his way around a battlefield, but he was completely lost in a courtroom. In a trial like this, where witness testimony was the only evidence, deciphering the legal minutiae was necessary to avoid a miscarriage of justice on an immense scale. For the women on trial, they couldn't, in their wildest nightmares, have imagined a worse decider of their fates. Thank you to my House of Lords, including but not limited to the King's favourite, Frederick, the Duchess of Devon, Michelle Gersich, the Marquis of Dorset, Thomas Kessler, the Earl of Fortescue, Alistair Fannish. Remember that every patron, regardless of rank, receives an RSS feed which you can put in any podcast app to listen to the podcast ad-free. Thank you to everyone who has supported me on Patreon, or donated through PayPal, left a review, or told a friend about the podcast. If you aren't already a listener of the History of England, go and give it a try today. David's show is the standard to which all other history podcasts are judged, and often found wanting. I've been a listener for years and years, and David is currently making his way through the reign of James VI and Thirst. If you enjoyed season one of PAX and wanted more, go listen to the recent episodes of The History of England. Thank you to Sounds Like an Earful for the interval music used in today's episode, to my entire House of Lords, and to you for listening.